know that we now have a driver in our family besides me and Tess. Now, why, what, this causes great stress to us. Now, when he's finally got it all worked out, uh, this will be fine and we don't have to worry anymore. But right now, there's a lot of stressful moments. Um, so, Rylan has got his learner's permit, and so we are uh, letting him drive everywhere we go. We want him to have as much practice as he can get. But what has surprised me is that when we started out just a couple weeks ago, uh, I did not realize how little he had been paying attention for two and a half years as we uh, living in Roanoke Rapids. I assumed that he could get from the church to our house, somewhere around three miles, four turns, thought he could do it, but quickly realized he didn't have a clue where he was going. He just kept driving. There was this one moment where he just kept driving. I said, why didn't you turn right? He said, you didn't tell me to turn. I said, this is the same way we go all the time. I don't know how many times we've done this. Well, I haven't been paying attention. Like two and a half years we've been doing this. You haven't been paying attention? No, I haven't been paying attention. And I thought, man, that's, that's, that, that really, that's how we read the Bible so often. And so, like, that is kind of what has happened with what we're doing this morning. This morning, we're going to deal with one verse. And it's a verse I have read over and over and over. And that just, I have just bypassed it for years. I just assume it's the beginning of a letter. Now, let's move into the meat. And what I realized this week as we've slowed down, almost like I got my learner's permit as a preacher, I had to slow this thing down because we're, you know, we're, we're in this series for the next 20 years. And so, you know, we're just slowing this down. And I just realized there were some turns I never recognized in the passage this morning. So we're picking up with 1 Peter. We're in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. That's it, verse 2. But we will read verse 1 uh, to get the context. Here it is. We'll just slow this down. I think we'll see some stuff. Maybe we've never seen. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Verse 2 is where we're going to sit here for the next little bit. Verse 2. Several things going on here. First thing I want to just just draw our attention to, big picture, is right here in verse 2 is one, uh, one of the greatest Christian doctrines on full display. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, never in the New Testament do we ever see the word Trinity. That is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, defined as Trinity. But what the New Testament does is it describes God working. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working. Working with His people. Working in the world. And right here in verse 2, we see God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. Not not described as they exist, but as they're working in the world. So just right off the bat, I just want to acknowledge the Trinities right here. So let's put up that slide. I just want you to see this. Right here, foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctifying work of the Spirit, Obedient to Jesus Christ. The Trinity is right there. So if you're ever wondering, like, where's the Trinity in the New Testament? This is an example of the Trinity on full display. God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit right here, all in verse 2. Now, there are a lot of other things going on in verse 2. A lot of other things. There's actually 
five big things we have to deal with in verse 2. Big doctrines, you might say. Things we really need to grapple with. Now, if we're just driving mindlessly, you kind of just move right past it. But I see five big things going on, and we're going we're to hit them in order. So take a, take a look. Here are those five things we're going to see. We see the chosen. There's the category of chosen. There's this category of foreknowledge. There's this concept of sanctifying work of the Spirit. There's this language of obedient to Jesus. And then right at the end of verse 2, sprinkled with His blood. All five of those things are right here in verse 2. And those are heavy things that we want to deal with them. And I think what you'll find is all five of these have something to say to us right where we live in ordinary life. I hope we can do that. I hope we can go from, from deep theology down to ordinary life. I think, I think we're going to be able to do it. So we'll start with this category of chosen. Right here in the NIV, we see, we see two things. I'm going to just pick it up. We don't have to put it on the screen. Just, just Let me just acknowledge this. So the NIV, the New Living Translation, what I'm using, I'm sorry, the New International Version that I'm using, he, the translators pull this concept twice. They translate it twice. Verse 1, to God's elect. Then in verse 2, who have been chosen. Twice they translate chosen or elect. Now the challenge here is that the NIV actually muddies the waters in their translation. Because in the Greek, in the original language, there's only one word. There's only one word in both verses for chosen. The, the Greek word, chose, which we translate chosen or uh, elect, it's only used once. It's actually only used in verse 1. It's not used in verse 2. So, if you wanted to, to be literal in your translation, it's going to come something closer to this. Let's put this next slide up. It's gonna, I want to have it marked out for you to see. So literally, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. That's where the word's used. That's where the Greek word is used. It's elect exiles. It's a, and then you would walk right into the fact that they're scattered in the regions according to the foreknowledge of God. So literally, it is to God's elect exiles who are scattered in this region according to the foreknowledge of God. The Greek actually doesn't include who have been chosen. That is a decision by the translators. But still, the, this, this, this category, this, this uh, idea of God choosing people, it's a, big, it's a big category. That's a really big one. And actually, it, it has echoes back into the Old Testament. It's a, big, it's a big concept that takes us all the way back to God choosing the people of Israel. And so what I want to do is I just want to take a snapshot of three different sections of Scripture. I want to take a look at an Old Testament, uh, an Old Testament passage. I want to see what Jesus has to say in one passage. And then I want to take a look and look at something Paul says. I kind of want to do a bit of a panorama in our time together. So take a look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. We see, we see this. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. He chose you. And we know back all the way to Genesis chapter 12, Abram was just standing around. We really don't know what he was doing, but he was just there and God stepped in. God initiated. God chose Abram. And here Moses is very clear. God chose you. You didn't choose God. 
He chose you as His people. Alright, the concept's there. So when Peter talks about them being chosen or elect exiles or pilgrims, that's an echo back to the Old Testament idea that God chooses His people. Alright, Jesus has something to say about this as well. We'll go to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is giving a vision of the end. And here's what He says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So this idea of God's people being the ones He has chosen or calling them the elect, this is even... This is even something Jesus uses when describing the way it will all come to an end. In the end, God will gather up His elect, the ones He has chosen. Then Paul says it this way in one of the clearest passages in the Bible, probably one of the most controversial, but definitely seems to be very clear when you take it at face value. Ephesians 1, 4-5, Paul writing to those Christians, For He chose us in Him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Twice here. God's choosing, God's predestining, and it's all according to the pleasures of His will. There's a panorama here from Old Testament to Jesus to the Apostle Paul. God takes the initiative. Now, this is not a sermon about how God chooses and all the details that involves, but what we can say is this, is that for the Apostle Peter, as he writes to these pilgrims scattered around this section of the Roman Empire, he believes that God has called them, He has chosen them, He has elected them. And that means God moved first. One of the things that we've been talking about in our adult Sunday morning class is how God is the one that does the moving. God does the initiating. And all of us come to know Jesus when we hear the Word because through the Word comes faith, which is a gift of God. But who gave the Word of God? Well, you didn't. You didn't create the Word of God. It came from God. God moved first. And don't you remember that other great passage that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While you were dead, God moved. So whatever we're going to say about election and God choosing His people, here's the thing I want us to land on. God moves first before we do. In the beginning, God spoke it into existence. God moves. Now again, I don't want to drive into all the details. That's not the point of this sermon, but I'm going to say this. God does the moving first. And that is... That is all within Paul's mind. All the echoes from the Old Testament. The calling of Israel. And Jesus Himself even talking about the gathering of His elect. Remember, Peter would have been with Jesus and heard the teachings. God moves. God chooses. God at least initiates. Alright. Now, tied to this choosing is this next concept. Another big one. Foreknowledge. So all of this is according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, we've got to really note here, let's go to the the next slide. Um, Yes, yes, that one should be repeated, so we'll just sit there. So I want us to notice here, 
that the way the NIV re- reads, it would seem that that you that they are chosen by God according to His foreknowledge. But that's not really what's happening here, because the who have been chosen is actually not in the original language. So literally, and we'll stay here, and then I want you to see it in another translation. Literally, what Peter's saying is, to God's elect exiles who are scattered in the regions, according to the foreknowledge of God. The according to refers to them being elect exiles. The fact that they are scattered, that they are strangers in a hostile world, that is what is according to God's foreknowledge. Check this out in the English Standard Version. I think it becomes a lot clearer this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What is according to God's foreknowledge is not the fact that they are chosen. It's the fact that they are chosen pilgrims. That they are in a world that is hostile. That is according to God's foreknowledge. Now, here's where we have to unpack foreknowledge. Because for English speakers, foreknowledge simply means that you know something before it happens. You just know a fact before it happens. You know information prior to the event. That is foreknowledge. But in the Bible, it has several other dimensions. And let me mention one. Foreknowledge involves God's predetermined plan. It's not just that God knew from the beginning that there would be people that He would call that would be suffering in a hostile world. No, it is that that is actually part of His predetermined plan. So when the Bible uses the word foreknowledge, one layer of its meaning is that the foreknowledge is actually God determining what He foreknows. Now, I'm going to give you an example of how this actually works out right here in 1 Peter chapter 1. So, later we're going to study in 1 Peter chapter 1 that he talks about Jesus coming into the world and that he is the Lamb of God. And by his blood, people are saved. And right after he says that, he's going to say something else about Jesus and this plan he had for Christ to be the Lamb of God. He says this. We're going to read it out of the English Standard Version. Here it is. 1 Peter 1.20 Christ was foreknown, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Foreknown here has, has here the layer of God determining that it would happen. God did not just know that somewhere in the future, Jesus would come and be the Lamb of God. No, God sent His Son. God determined this would be the plan. It wasn't just some piece of information that he knew would happen. It was that God actually foreknew. You may not be surprised that if you're reading the NIV, if you're reading the NIV, you know how the NIV translators translate, he foreknew? The word in the Greek is foreknew. They translate it chose. That he was chosen. That's how closely tied foreknowledge, and God's predetermined plan are together. And so, if we had to summarize it and just bring it down to plain English, here's the way I would do it, right here. It's no accident that these Christians are suffering and living as spiritual exiles in a hostile world. It's all according to God's plan. Does that rub you a little bit the wrong way? That God 
would set in motion a plan that people would actually suffer. And yet that's exactly what Peter's doing right here in the introduction of the letter is to describe them, to tell them who they are. You are a people chosen by God. You are suffering in a hostile world. And that is according to God's plan. He's got a plan for you. And part of that plan involves suffering. Now, for us who like to be comfortable, that doesn't feel good. Like, what in the world? Why would God do that? We will come to that here soon. But what we can say at this point is that God has initiated this relationship with these Christians. And somehow, in predetermined, they are suffering as spiritual pilgrims in a hostile world. All according to His plan. No accident here. And He encourages them with this. You are not outside of God's will. He's got you right where He wants you. And then he says there's three things that are going to happen because of this. Like, God's plan involves three more things. And let's just run through them. Those are those last three things on the list. So first here is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You see that? The sanctifying work of the Spirit. So as, as they suffer, as God's chosen people in a hostile world, according to God's plan in these regions, the Holy Spirit is going to make them pure. It's going to make them more like Jesus. It's going to, you might say, renew them. Literally, it's going to create and continue to create the way of Christ inside of them. The Spirit will purify them as they suffer. The Spirit is working. I just want to just read, there are so many scriptures here. Let me just give you one scripture that describes, alongside this passage in Peter, how the Holy Spirit is intimately tied to when God renews Take a look, Titus 3.5. We'll just tie in with Paul's thinking here. Paul says this, He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Spirit. The Spirit is doing a work. And for Peter, as these Christians who are chosen according to God's predestined plan, that God is ensuring and will make sure that they are going to look more and more like Jesus as the Holy Spirit renews them even in their suffering. You can take that to the bank. Now, there's another thing that's going to be happening here. Not only is the sanctifying of the Spirit, but there's another thing that's happening as they are living in a hostile world as, as, as these spiritual pilgrims. He's going to make sure that all of it's happening for obedience to Jesus. They will become obedient to Jesus. So as they suffer... As God's chosen people in a world that doesn't like them, the Spirit purifying them, well, they will become more and more obedient to Christ. It's very important because Jesus had some things to say about being obedient to Him. Do you remember before He left? We don't have the Scripture up uh, on the screen. But as He left, as He was ascending to heaven, He told His disciples, you go into all the world, to all kinds of people, and you teach them, you teach them to obey everything I've taught you. And here Peter, I believe with the, that, that command echoing in his mind, tells these Christians, this suffering will teach you and it will be for you to be obedient to Jesus. You will become more obedient to Jesus in your suffering because the Spirit is purifying you. And it's going to be all according to God's plan. God's plan is for you to become more obedient to Jesus. It was Jesus' will that they become more obedient to Him as well. Check, check this out. Just... Again, I'm just, we're just taking a, a, just a sampling of, of scriptures here. John 14, verse 15, and the first part of 21. Here's what Jesus said. If you love me, you keep my commands. And in verse 21, whoever 
has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So it would be no surprise that as Peter is talking about what comes of this suffering that they're going through, that they would become more obedient to Jesus because that's part of the end game. You become obedient to Jesus. You're being more pure. You, this, the, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. You're becoming more obedient to Jesus. And then there's this really odd thing at the end. What do you make of this? So as you're being sanctified, as, as you become more obedient to Jesus, you're sprinkled with His blood. It's a bit of an odd, odd way to end this description of who they are. Sprinkled in His blood. Now, without going into all the details, this is a clear echo from the Old Testament where people would be sprinkled with the blood. And there are a couple instances where this happened and God is setting aside people with the sprinkling of blood on them and is purifying them. Lepers, for example. In Leviticus, we, uh, they are told that when a leper is to be purified, there's the sprinkling of blood on them. When the people renew the covenant at Mount Sinai, there's a sprinkling of blood on them. But I think the echo that is most uh, prominent in Peter's mind is that moment at the Last Supper when Jesus holds up a cup. And you remember what he says? This represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant. You will be covered in this blood. This blood will seal the deal with, for my people. Forgiveness will cover you because of my blood. And so what's happening here, what's happening here, is that as Peter describes these people these Christians, as a people suffering according to God's plan, who are being sanctified, obedient to Christ, but all along the way, they are covered by the blood. You think they obeyed perfectly? Absolutely not. Did you obey perfectly this week? Absolutely not. But you are sprinkled with His blood. It's another way of saying that you are covered in forgiveness. As God's chosen people, you are constantly covered with the blood of Christ. Reminds me of that old hymn, there is power in the blood. It seems odd to the world, I'm sure. But you are wrapped in forgiveness by the blood of the Lamb of God. And so I imagine that not only Peter is, who picks up on this, I know also that this is echoing in the minds of other apostles. We'll take a look at just one of them. First John 1.7 I imagine that Peter and John had conversations about this. They just word it differently in their letters. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. So as you go about, as you're living in this world, as you're suffering, even according to God's plan, you make sure to remember that even when you mess up, even when you don't do things perfect, you are covered in His blood. Here, uh, John talks about it being something that purifies us. Peter talks about it as being sprinkled with the blood. The point is, is that the blood of the new covenant constantly covers you as you go about in this world. Alright, let's summarize it all. Here's where we, here's, here's the road we just walked. Here were all the turns we just took. These Christians are God's chosen people, and by His foreknowledge, it is His plan that they live as exiles in a hostile world. And as they do, the Holy Spirit will sanctify them. And they'll grow in obedience to Christ. And they're always forgiven. Sprinkled by His blood. There it is. Okay? So let's make some application. Let's just drive it. Two things that I think we can pull away for some application. First, I think, is this. That our struggles and sufferings are not accidents. God is in control. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I have no idea how this all works out. I remember years ago, I did the funeral for a 12-year-old who died of cancer. 
church. It was a church of thousands of people praying for this young girl. And she still died. What do you do? What do you do? What do you say to people in a eulogy when it seems like something so, so unfair is sitting right before you? Well, what you say is God's in control. And God's good. And I don't understand really anything else. That's what I say. I don't, I don't know any, what else are we supposed to say. But I know this, that God won't waste any pain. For God's children, He wastes no pain. And so if you're mourning, if you're suffering, if your body hurts, here's what I think you, you need to hear. It's all according to His foreknowledge. He's in control. And He'll make sure that it turns to good. Because He is good. And you've got to rest in that. And like, but I want to know why. Well, I remember Paul said this thing in Romans. He said, does the clay say to the potter, why are you making me this way? No, the clay does not talk to the potter. The potter does what he wants. We are clay in the hands of a good God. And for his chosen people, nothing will be wasted. And so I know this doesn't give comfort by giving you a why. It would not give me comfort. But what gives comfort is that he is good. And because He is good, all things work to His glory. And His glory is the greatest thing in the world. It's where all happiness and joy is. And so in the end, it will all be well. It just so happens in the middle of the book, it really stinks sometimes. But also, your suffering, if you allow it, and God has a plan for it, will actually make you more like Jesus, more obedient, and in all of it you'll be forgiven when you mess up. But I want you to remember this. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever is on your mind that is troublesome, it is all according to God's will. He is in control. Do you know what the other option is if God isn't in control? I'd rather not go there, so we won't. I kind of just want to leave God in control on this one. Okay. Now, let's go with this second one. The second one, I think, will help us with the first one. Uh, this one's going to, this one's, I want to acknowledge something maybe many of you have been struggling with even during the sermon. But let's read it and then I'll maybe acknowledge your struggle. Bible words and concepts are not irrelevant, distant, or super religious. They're knowledge about reality. Now, you don't need to, don't even, you steal your faces. But I wonder, in the last 20 minutes, how many of you checked out for a minute? Mert, don't Mert, don't you don't look at me like that. Don't steal your face. How many of you just checked out? Because words like sanctification, things like obedience, phrases like sprinkled with his blood, those seem to be theological, but not really relevant. When's the last time you walked around in everyday life and talked about being sanctified? Probably not. You see, what often happens to us is when we come into this room or we listen to sermons, we expect that we'll get all of this religious stuff. But then when we leave the room, we just assume we'll go back to ordinary life and talk about things that ordinary people talk about. Sports and politics. Things like our job or things going on at home. But things like sanctification and being sprinkled by blood, these aren't categories we typically think in. But my, this is the challenge. But what if things like sanctification, things like being sprinkled with His blood are actually the things that are most real? 
What happens when we get to heaven and we're in the middle and in the midst of reality and what we're doing is singing about the Lamb who's reigning on His throne and we're singing the things like He's holy and full of glory. Those will be the most real things in the world. I think our struggle here is, at least for me, and I'm thinking it probably is for you at times, these words can just seem to be distant because we don't typically think in these words. We don't pull these categories to understand ordinary life. But I think that's the problem. I think that's the challenge. Let me say it this way. Let's put up the next one. Just a short summary. Here's what I want. I want to think with Bible words and concepts when I'm going through life struggles. So when I'm going through a hard time, I don't want to think, man, this is uncomfortable. Man, I'm not happy. Man, I hope this passes. What I want to be thinking is, man, this is according to the foreknowledge of God. Man, this will sanctify me. Man, I am still sprinkled by the blood. I am still forgiven even as I mess up. I literally want to walk through the ordinary uh, ordinary coming and goings of my day with those categories defining how I see the world. Now you might say, Ah, but that just seems like, that just seems unreasonable. Who walks around thinking about sanctification? Do you know there was a day when you didn't think about things like Republican and Democrat? Yeah, yeah. There was a day when you weren't thinking about being a liberal or conservative. Here's my larger point. Let's put it up. We've been trained to think of life in many different categories. For example, we increasingly view life through a political lens. Everything is either Republican, Democrat, conservative, or liberal. But there's no reason we can't become the kind of people who naturally see life through the biblical lens. Understanding reality with Bible words and concepts. That's what I want. Do you know how odd it is to be a pastor talking with someone who's struggling through life's difficulties and you know that there are Bible words and Bible categories to use to help them but you know how cheesy it sounds when you do. It's something I constantly live with. Because I want to bring to bear on all of life all of these super religious words that really are just words that should define reality. But they just sound so religious and distant and irrelevant. And I just sound like some cheesy pastor who wants to make everything about the Bible. But what if, what if the Bible is about everything? And so I want these categories to define us. I want to be thinking about how ordinary life, literally potty training Micah, is about the business of sanctifying me. It doesn't get any more ordinary or frustrating than trying to potty train a toddler. Anybody drive you nuts? Or driving with a 15-year-old who doesn't know where they're going. That is a moment where God is sanctifying us. You don't think anger can emerge in a situation with a 15-year-old in a car? There's a lot to be learned about holiness. I want, I want the Bible words and concepts to become so much a part of me, that's how I view my world. Unfortunately, I've been so well-trained, I usually start from the political arena, or from the sports arena, or from the arena of my job. I want the Bible words and concepts. Now, you know the way you get that? You get it the same way you got the political concepts. You've got to watch a lot of Fox News. You get the point. You've got to read a lot of Bible. You've got to do it the same way. You don't become a political pundit 
by just sampling political news. You get it by saturating yourself in it. Same thing happens with sports geeks. They're saturated in that stuff. We've got to become the kind of people that are so saturated with the Bible that when we hit a, when we hit a moment in life that is of great trouble, we remember God's in control and is sanctifying us, but we are still sprinkled by His blood and we are moving towards obedience in Christ. The only way you get that is your default thinking is if you're saturated in it. I'm not there yet, but I want it. So here's our next step. Here's our next step. It's coming. Read First Peter this week. Again. Again. Now, I promise you, every week we won't be reading First Peter. But it seemed like a fitting next step. The only way you get this stuff inside of you is if you sit with it over and over and over again. Listen to it. Read it. Talk to people about it. And yes, it's going to feel uncomfortable because we don't use these words in everyday life. But the only reason we don't use them in everyday life is because we've been trained to use other categories. And other words. If we're going to be God's people, we use God's words and God's concepts and we get it from the Scriptures. We're not getting it from anywhere else. So that's the challenge. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray we become a people here at East 10th Street that become so saturated in Your Word that we literally think and talk in the Bible's concepts and words. The words we'll be singing and talking about forever and ever. Would you help us with that? And literally, would you help us? Would you help us in our, in our struggles and in our suffering and our mourning? And may we remember, literally, Holy Spirit, bring it to our minds through your word that you will waste no pain and no suffering because you are literally in control and you are sovereign. And so for all of that, we pray it unto the name of Jesus, in whom we are obedient, or to whom we are obedient, and in whom we are sprinkled with blood. And together we say, Amen.